Welcome to the Honest Labor Podcast, where we look at life lessons through the lens of woodworking. This is episode one, Prelude to Perfection. Gentlemen. Gentlemen. Welcome back. Good to see you guys. I'm pretty excited about this article today. I think it's going to be a good conversation. What's it called, Murray? It's called Ancestral Voices. So for tonight, I chose an article written called Down to Earth. It portrays craft, specifically woodwork, to, to be a grounding activity for people. All right, here we are again. And this episode, we're going to be discussing the will and the purpose. I think I'm going to kick it off by reading the first paragraph um, because the whole thing is pretty incredible and it'll set the tone. So here we go. Sometimes it seems that the end product of a technological society will be a nation of sitters. The amount of book work required of a student for almost any qualifying examination, plus the increasing use of cars and television at almost every level, and you have the scales heavily weighted from the beginning against any form of muscular activity. It is a peculiar advantage of any form of craft work, which needs skill and application to act as a reasonable and natural antidote. Even so, the pull in the other direction is strong, and a man needs to have a clear sense of purpose if he is to resist it altogether. So Charles Hayward wrote that in 1966. And Frank sounds like it was written today. I know. (laughs) And it just blows me away, like, how forward-thinking this is. And maybe also that things just go in circles. Reoccurring themes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So I think I just kind of want to kick it off, go around and, and talk about, you know, the thoughts on, on, how hard it is to find a purpose in a society that is, and, and we'll get into this more, that is by design working towards eliminating purpose, you know, working towards making convenience and comfort the thing that people strive for, but yet that is undermining a deeper sense of, of purpose. And, uh, and what it is, you know, right off the bat, like how does that, what are, what are the forces at play to begin with that cause us to, you know, have to have to find it within ourselves? Everyday convenience that we have throughout our lives, um, like we have computers that do so much for us, and cars and grocery stores right around the corner. You know, we don't we don't have a need to struggle as much Mm -hmm. yeah and i feel like in the name of convenience corporations companies technology all of it is is trying to fill this need of of taking away our discomfort you know i think talking about the 60s when he wrote this i think about you know dishwashers and laundry machines yes. <laughs> and how they were supposed to cutting edge technology. cutting edge and, and well, one of the other things that was really coming into play if not then but shortly thereafter was simply processed foods too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah and microwave dinners exactly 
Yeah. Exactly. I remember, uh, yeah, like growing up. Well, not, all, you know, not every meal, but some meals. Be like, all right. And I can remember the taste of the mashed potatoes. Hamburger helper. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Well, inconvenience doesn't sell. You know, and this is definitely something that I thought, and this is along the lines of what you were talking about, Paul. But, I mean, people and corporations, they're they're going to make money, and understandably so, right? To provide comfort and convenience to the American public, or public in general. And this... I don't want to go too deep into a tangent here, but this is a thought that I've had is I believe that there is a tipping point in which convenience in the human race becomes counterproductive and we're either there or we're approaching it very quickly. And I mean, as you said, this was written in 1966, very prescient, very foretelling, right? I mean, he, he was seemingly explaining present day at that time but <clears throat> i don't think that he could have foretold what 2023 looks mm-hmm. like and <laughs> it'd be interesting to see the words that he used if he were watching it today as it unfolded um not sure exactly where i was going with that but anyway there, there's always going to be an endless, it seems to me, an endless pursuit of convenience. And that is one, I mean, I think the last sentence of the paragraph, right? Even so, the pull in the other direction is strong. A man needs to have a clear sense of purpose if he is to resist it altogether. And that mm-hmm. pull is strong, right? That's an understatement, I'd say. The status quo of is yeah. to fall into that sitting category. Yeah, and what I love about this to to transition right there is that he's not just talking about the philosophical pursuit of comfort and convenience, but he's tying it to the very physical changes in which that results in, you know, sitting, Mm. literally just sitting around quote unquote working. Mm -hmm. And these days, of course, it's sending emails. It's, you know, video conferencing, Mm -hmm. it's whatever. But like the vast majority of people, when they go to work, they sit down all day long. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, it's so easy, and this obviously ties in with the tangibility of, of craft, but anybody is going to be able to appreciate how that convenience leads to doing very, very little, if mm-hmm. anything at all, mm-hmm. physically. Mm-hmm. And, and it, uh, of course, has some long long-term effects on, on our bodies you know we become sedentary beings. so yeah. so i think that we do need to expand it to the, the conversation rather to more than just people going to work and being sedentary but kids as well yeah right i mean i was looking on the cdc's website and some of the average hours per day of sitting or inactivity was mind-blowing i mean it was between seven and a half to nine plus hours of screen time actually um for for kids kids wow per day yeah and and so i think i i just uh double underlined in the book from the beginning right the scales heavily weighted from the beginning against any form of muscular activity Mm-hmm. From the beginning, mm-hmm. now, 
when we're using iPads and iPhones as the pacifiers, the beginning is much earlier. Yeah. And, and I think we're really starting to see the expectations uh, in society shift. And especially with kids, you know, if we're talking about kids being on screens seven, eight, nine hours a day, we know that like schools are cutting out recess and gym classes, you know, to an extent that when we were growing up, wasn't, you know, those were present, we would do that, you know, and, and I, and I having a kid in kindergarten and one in preschool right now, you know, one thing I just read an article yesterday, um, about yeah, ADHD mm-hmm. and how rates of that, at least, you know, diagnoses of that are just skyrocketing. Mm-hmm. And what I found so interesting, um, which directly ties into this, is that one of the guys um, who was interviewed for the article, um, older guy in his 50s or 60s, uh, this was in Esquire magazine, it was called The Drugging of the American Boy. Um, he talked about how when he was growing up, he was always the kid that was, you know, sent to like sitting in the back of the class, not paying attention, but he was really smart and he got great, great scores when he actually applied himself. And it was that classic, oh, you're not living up to your potential, which I feel like I definitely had teachers <laughs> tell me that too. Um, but the best part, um, at least related to this, is that he said as soon as he got out of school, he didn't go to college. But actually, he did go to college. He studied a bunch of uh, psychology. But after going to school, getting his master's, uh, he started woodworking. Because mm-hmm. woodworking was a thing that kept him on his feet, kept him engaged, hmm. and, and allowed him to focus. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was just like, wow, this is an amazing example. Um, now he subsequently uh, works with boys specifically hmm. um, who... Um, are, are deemed, you know, too hyperactive mm. for the school structure we have right now, which is, as we said, you know, predicated on kids sitting there quietly, paying attention, not moving. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought that it was just fascinating that he saw that he turned it around, was working with the kids, but that it was the craft of word working that really <laughs> got him um, engaged and, and that's how he entered the workforce. First off, I feel like we need to reach out to this guy, whoever this guy is, because <laughs> yeah. it sounds like mm-hmm. his, uh, life goals now really line up with what we're trying, trying to achieve. I feel like oh, that story resonates with a lot of people who are kind of searching for, uh, what they want to do with their lives. Um, and a, a craft is, is an answer to that. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I totally agree. And one of the things that I th- thought as I was preparing, I, I feel like almost all of us are always on the path of trying to figure out what we want to do when we grow up. Oh, yeah. You know? Every and, day. And that <laughs> has become just a life truth. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to be grown up for quite some time (laughs) right i mean it's not it's not like you're going to go to school and go to college and do exactly what your major was well and i wonder i wonder what grown-up means you know in this like the connotation of grown-up 
when people say that. Like you're, when I'm growing up, you're I'm paying bills. This. Yeah, <laughs> but like it also like yes, you have responsibilities <laughs> and stuff. But I also feel like growing up means like you're not having fun anymore. You know, when I'm a grown up, I'm gonna <laughs> do this. You know, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm good because I have to. Mm-hmm. You know, but like I feel like it's all a mindset. You know, I mean, there's so many cliches about it. You know, you're only old when you let yourself feel older. Yeah, whatever. Um, but I don't know. I think like to me, curiosity is like the key to so much, and fully, in, you know keeping your eyes and your ears and all your senses open to the world, you know, and you're curious, that's what a kid does, you know? And, like, you don't have to... You can still be a professional and, you know, explore different areas or, you know... Yeah, that's what this whole article's hinting mm-hmm. at. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so let me read a little bit more because I think he, he speaks to this directly. Um So, I'll read a little bit uh, here. He says, uh, The fact remains that man as man is primarily creative and that modern civilization seems bent upon destroying his direct link with creation by keeping him at a far remove from reality. But when he is working in wood or metal and the like, a man is working with real things. His experiences, problems, achievements have a real and solid basis which can affect him as life itself can affect him in a way which shapes and teaches. So good. Yeah, the way he ties the philosophy with the craft is it's just so clear. And what did you guys think about the idea of modern civilization seems bent upon destroying his direct link with creation by keeping him at a far remove from reality. What came into your minds? Uh, augmented reality? Metaverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, metaverse. Right. I don't know hardly anything about the metaverse, but it, mm-hmm. I know enough that it scares me. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a gamer, but I mean, even people who play video games, I mean, that's a... That's a alternate reality for sure you didn't know really existing in this world that is not tangible and doesn't have real risk mm-hmm. real negative outcomes mm-hmm. right i mean i don't know i i feel like our being and our character development has to be founded upon reality yeah physical objects totally that, that we work with our hands. Um, Luke, can you maybe give us some uh, some insight into some of the like, transformations you've seen with the kids you work with at Sloyd on, you know, some of these kids who have been sort of handicapped from the beginning by our society as far as not having that sense of reality, not having that tangibility and what like you see when they come into the classroom and start working with wood. Yeah, a few things immediately come to mind. One is um, some of the kids before they even stepped foot into the classroom had a high degree of anxiety. And they were they were scared, quite honestly, that they were going to be working with sharp tools. They didn't fully understand or comprehend what that meant. But they knew at least that there was a risk, which is 
better than not acknowledging that there is any risk at all because that's not true either. Um, and that may be a flip side to this thread that I'm pulling right now. Um, nevertheless, uh, those who did have that high level of anxiety, I mean, it was almost on day one to where they realized what the risk was and what the outcomes were and what the rewards were. And the rewards, which may be something that we talk about a little bit later on, being the work itself, right? Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's one thing that comes to mind. Another thing that comes to mind has to do with motivation, which is another thing that I think Hayward is getting into in this article. Um, I think that the will and the purpose could be, you could swap that out for motivation and, and, um, I have some thoughts on that. But anyway, we've had some kids who they, they have come in with no real sense of intrinsic motivation. But through time, and I believe exposure to what I like to call reality, right? <laughs> Where they're using their hands, they're using tools, they are, I mean, and brains and heart all simultaneously and some of the turnaround that we've had with those kids has been transformational to the point where they want to give me hugs at the end of class because they're having so much fun and that's what I want I want to see that type of motivation and enthusiasm and before that it was standing at the bench don't know don't care mm-hmm Standing at the bench, don't know, don't care, I think goes back to another thing that Hayward's talk, Hayward talks about um, earlier in that, that paragraph that you're reading mm-hmm. with um, where it says some university professors have lately been accusing their students of aimlessness, of not knowing where they want to go and what they want to do. Again, that could be a whole other tangent, but I'm going to try to stick to answering <laughs> that question. Yeah, uh, but I think right below that, between what you just read and what I started off this, this part with is he says, um, uh, it needs, well, they may, uh, these students, as the professors say, have reached some kind of saturation point in the acquirement of knowledge, which has needed an outlet in active work to give their knowledge form and substance. And I, I that one really struck me in that it's so nebulous out there, you know, you go onto the internet, you go digital, and you don't know what reality is, you know, mm-hmm. and and it, it's you could go anywhere, I and mean, you can go down the proverbial rabbit hole with anything, mm-hmm. but then you gotta apply that. You gotta apply that. Yeah. You gotta you put them in front of a of a workbench, mm-hmm. and it's like watch a video or two, and then yeah. get the tool in your hand and get it working. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think that like there's this huge problem with indecision too, and like the example I'm sure everybody can relate to is like you go on Netflix or some streaming service and you know you want to watch a movie or show and then you end up just like clicking through all the previews you know because oh it's like maybe I'll watch that or that or that and like 20 minutes later you haven't watched anything except a bunch of previews you know it's so easy to like endlessly browse without going into something and you know it's like the the digital realm provides that it, it it views endless choice 
the same way, you know, society at large does. You know, you go into the grocery and you you see, what, 10 different types of Cheerios. And it's like, that's supposed to be a good thing. Is it? Like, I don't yeah. know. I don't know about that. Well, I'm, I'm sure that there are studies um, that have been done on that very topic. And, I mean, without having anything concrete to pull out in sight right now, I do believe that generally the consensus is no. Mm-hmm. Is that an endless choice is not conducive to happiness. Mm-hmm. It's not conducive to decision-making. Um, I think that having limited choices and I'm not I, I, limited choices does not mean not mean limited freedom mm-hmm. okay yeah um, but limited choices um, helps with the decision making and and helps with happiness like I said I well I think the paradox is is that the fewer choices you have the more freedom you have mm-hmm. in the sense that like you can you can go. You can find that depth. I think the last episode we we're talking about depth versus breadth. Yeah. And when you reduce the amount of choices, you, you know, inherently give yourself the opportunity to go deeper. You know, and and it's weird because I think that it's it feels liberating when you don't have endless choices out there. You know, you kind of and and as we go, I think Hunter S. Thompson, uh, the writer, said. You know, if you don't, if you don't dictate the circumstances of your life, life will dictate them for you. And as we age, as we get older, our choices automatically get limited. You know, like I'm not going to go be an astronaut or a professional sports player of any kind. You know, I mean, like this is just life winning, winning down, you know, winnowing down what is available to us. So whether we are conscious about it or not, it's going to happen. You're settling into your, your notch. Exactly. And if you can accept that and, you know, own it, I feel like you're going to be able to find the happiness and just find the, the freedom and the pleasure. And, and just, this is what I'm doing. This is what I do. But guiding people to that is, is key, especially when they're younger and, you know, the funnel is open. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. And one of the things that I've come across recently is the idea of during prepubescent years, there's a thing or things that you come across that give you joy, that you dig into, right? Whatever that thing is. And that thing may not be what brings you joy and happiness when you're a young adult or you're middle-aged or beyond, right? But during those early formative years, finding that feeling of joy is key as You go on through life to be able to continue that motivation, to continue that seeking of that feeling. Hmm. Not necessarily that thing, but that feeling. So one of the things that I have thought is I wonder if some of our 
motivation or lack thereof issues in kids and college students. As he mentioned here, there's some really interesting statistics that we could get into in current day as well. But I wonder if some of that has to do with a lack of experiences with reality that brings that true sense of joy. And now they don't know what that feeling is that they need to go seek. That's my thought. So, question. Mm -hmm. Did you guys have a thing when you were younger that brought you that sense of joy, that feeling that I'm trying to, to describe? And if so, what was it? For me, I have a, a very clear memory of going to summer camp and seeing the counselors there play guitar, oh, play cool. music. Yeah. And I, that was probably, I think it was in third third or fourth grade mm -hmm. when I first went there. I always enjoyed music, mm -hmm. but watching these guys who I really looked up to and respected playing guitar and like playing together and people singing was like so fascinating to mm -hmm. me. And, and so I, I got a guitar and I started playing and, um, and music is a huge part of my life and I've yeah. played in bands and I still love all forms of music really. Mm -hmm. Um, but that has been a huge source of joy for me. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, I was just talking to uh, the guy who's installing cabinets at my job today, and he's a musician as well. We were kind of talking about a lot of this stuff, um, about the presence and just being present, mm -hmm. and how it's so easy when you're on your phone, or like by default, when you're on your phone, you're not where you are. You are somewhere else via this portal you know, mm -hmm. wherever. But when you pick up uh, a guitar and someone else has a bass or, you know, a mandolin, if you're playing bluegrass or something like that, and you're playing together, it's like it forces you to be fully present, fully engaged, and communicating with these other people uh, in a way that's so authentic and so real. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is like, I have made some of my best friends playing music, and it's just such a, such a, deep-seated like sense of satisfaction mm -hmm. when you're really listening to each other and you're like in the groove mm -hmm. and you're just going mm -hmm. and you're feeling it you're improvising and you're just in the moment mm -hmm. and it's taking you places mm -hmm. um so that's that's the, the example for me for that's sure. cool I, I like that it's continued throughout your life um but i do think that the fact that it happened early in life mm -hmm. i mean you you found that fascinating and fascinating is probably an understatement mm -hmm. right but that's cool paul well for me <clears throat> i would say uh i was i was very drawn into uh fishing when mm -hmm. i was a little kid sweet and i don't know where it came from my family isn't very outdoorsy at all so i kind of learned it on my own and i was the kid riding my bike after school down to the the pond and catching big bass and I had all the different lures and huge tackle box and taught myself how to fly fish when I was in sixth grade. Wow. Uh, yeah, I still I was, don't know. I was, I was <laughs> just kind of infatuated with it. Yeah. I think probably the peak of it was maybe in middle school. Um, just reading fishing books all the time in school and watching yeah. 
the Bassmaster Classic on TV, you know, like totally. that was that was my jam, and uh, um, it was just uh, it was a continual continual draw, and it, I was learning how to use different lures and different techniques, and it was just an endless uh, joy. I I felt like um, I I still fish now, not nearly as much as I did in in college. I did a lot. And when I lived live in North Dakota, mm-hmm. I mean, that's all we had to do was fish, <laughs> fish and hunt. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I got, got into it. We were ice fishing all winter long mm-hmm. at the shack, you know, mm-hmm. did, all, did all this stuff. And, you know, when I was in Iowa going mm-hmm. to college there, I had a, a fishing kayak with a depth finder. And, and I would take fishing, week-long fishing trips in the Boundary Waters by myself. Um, it was joy. And, uh, but it was, I, I could... I could say that was before I really got into woodworking. That was that was my thing where I just wanted to be the best and uh, hmm. always always working for it. You know what I hear? Motivation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. you were motivated. I I love the p- part of the narrative there that nobody taught you how to fish. Like no, you taught you how to fish. And the other part, like the um, self-reliance and by your going on those trips by yourself to boundary waters quite honestly i can't imagine like that <laughs> how old were you when you were doing it when i was going to the boundary waters yeah. that was in my college years yeah yeah um so i drive up there eight hours from iowa state university mm-hmm. and had my fishing kayak on my roof and i'd go out for um you know four four to seven days yeah. were, were the the stints i did and just packed the kayak full of camping gear and a couple fishing rods so that camp i went to was up in northern wisconsin okay and we would do a bunch of yeah. uh like wilderness tripping and boundary waters it's Phen- phenomenal up there oh, it's so gorgeous yeah. it's so peaceful right man nothing like being in the boundary waters like as the sun's going down and the loons are calling and then the stars come out it's like there's no more peaceful place on earth except the metaverse <laughs> yeah. I, I, we could experience that right now I've heard the metaverse is very peaceful it re- renews the spirit Luke what's your uh, what's yours yeah, well, Man, I don't know if I can really even come close to matching either of those I, I, I suppose mine would be really just speaking in generalities um, a real affection and appreciation for nature Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up on a 40 acre hobby farm. Half of it was wooded timber and just going out and exploring and making things like there's this little stream that was the outflow from the pond on our property. And I wanted to dam it up a little bit further down and see what would happen. Catching frogs, catching crawdads, making crawdad traps, you know, going bass fish- fishing, accidentally catching snapping turtles you know (laughs) the the list goes on um but i think similarly to what you guys were discussing in your your more uh, acute accounts um just nature and and appreciation and I, i think that the common theme goes back to reality yeah and what i would say in addition to that is presence you know like whether you're catching crawdads or mm-hmm. you're fishing or I was playing music, 
like all of those I think require you to be right there mm-hmm. in the moment. Mm-hmm. And nature certainly provides ample opportunity for that. And I, I remember I used to work on a ranch in Southern Colorado and we would, in addition to pushing cattle around, lead horse packing trips for kids, um, teenagers. And up in the high country, uh, you know, a storm usually rolled in every afternoon about four o'clock. And I loved it because, I mean, and these are pretty vicious storms mm-hmm. and quick, mm-hmm. but I mean, the lightning and just torrential downpours. And I loved it because whatever I might have been drifting off thinking about while we were just sort of casually walking through, you know, the meadows, um, when that storm rolled in, it was like, okay, we need to find an aspen grove. That was mm-hmm. kind of our protocol. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets off the horse, we circle up, we just hang out and wait for it to pass. But you know, when that lightning's going down and I was in charge of, you know, 12 <laughs> kids and 14 horses, I'm like, all right, there's one thing I need to do right now and nothing else in the world matters at all. No doubt. And that, I think I just loved it so much because it required presence. It made everything else fall away immediately. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard for people to, to find those moments right now okay so i'm going back he yeah. talks about that in the article so go ahead uh let me find it here um i'll let you find I'm, I'm gonna go to where i i think it is there may be another part but he talks about the whittling away of compulsions is the main danger there was a time when the sheer compulsion of achieving a good standard of work in order to earn a living was incentive enough for the true craftsman there followed a sense of pride in his skill, which gave some zest to the job, right? I mean, that's the type of presence. But in in most jobs now, right, I, I think of it, and this is another thought that I really want to go down, but we know the idea of processed foods and processed foods not being healthy, mm-hmm. right? Because it strips away all of the micronutrients, right? Mm-hmm. I think so many quote-unquote jobs today we've stripped away the ability to provide that zest and be present in that work right mm-hmm. um the compulsion right <laughs> and paul but i think before we started recording here i mean we were talking about just the idea of wanting to do something right right and that's another thing that he talks about in here but what, what would you say makes you want to do something right? Why is it? And what is it about you and your character in wanting to do something right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you one answer here. It's legacy. Mm. Right? Like, that's kind of what drives me as a furniture maker. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not in this to make money... I, I need to make money at doing it, but, mm-hmm. you know, no one's building furniture for a living to make riches. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, like, how am I going to re- be remembered or, or how do people look at me? Um, do they do they see me as as a, um, a half-hearted craftsman that makes sloppy cabinets or do I make uh, pieces of work that their grandchildren will fight over, you know, and that's, that's what I want to 
work. That's what I'm working towards when I'm building something in my shop and, and working. Um, you just step, step back and, and think about the legacy that, um, I'm living and, uh, that I'm, I'm leaving after I'm gone. I love it. Before you go, Marty, yeah. I, 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 there's just another th- thread later on, and, and we can come back to it if we need to. But in the article, this sentence comes to mind in response to your response to me. <laughs> the good craftsman who can think for himself and judge for himself is one of the few. With him, work must inevitably and automatically be sound work because he has grown up that way. Yeah, that's that's the quote I... <laughs> Boom. <laughs> Yeah, we're on the same wavelength there. Yeah, go ahead, Marty. Um, I was gonna read something else that uh, says, "None of us get very far by sticking to the bare necessities of living, but it takes persistence and a certain amount of courage to venture on the little bit more." Um, and you know, I think it does. Like, it takes the courage and that motivation. Going back to that of. You know, what are you going to leave to your kids? What What are you going to be remembered by? You know, when when our words have you know faded and we just have something real left behind. I mean, the bar is so low these days. So what? Why is courage required? What do you think? I th- Got to get out of your comfort zone. Yeah, that, and you need to fail. You need to fail a yeah. lot, yeah. and you know it's to. To achieve anything worth its salt, you have to you have to go through those trials and tribulations of figuring it out, and and I think that so many people hit that first roadblock, and they're like, oh wow, this is harder than I thought. This wasn't the get rich quick thing or like the magic bullet I was hoping. I'm just gonna keep. I'm gonna go try something else. But like the only people that actually achieve what they what they want, they find that satisfaction and that the purpose is is by going forward and continuing forward in the face of in spite of, you know, failure and and getting even more motivation from failing. You know, one other thing I, I would say is that like the better you get at something, you know, frankly, the more fun it is. You know, it's more fun to pull things off. Or in the case of like collaborative stuff like playing music or even solo stuff like, you know, climbing or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's like the better you are, the more you can do, you know, mm-hmm. the more you can play, the, the more you can climb or ski or, you know, whatever. Like, mm-hmm. it's just frankly more fun. And there's nothing wrong with like fun being the motivator too. Right. But if you're going to just be, you know you're never going to get past that novice stage. You're never going to be able to experience like the full depth of what any activity has to offer. Yeah. And I think that that narrative right there is just such a great and important lesson to teach to kids in whatever capacity it is, whether it's as a mentor, a parent or teacher, Mm -hmm. whatever. But for you as the adult or parent, to be able to have that craft, whatever it is, or whatever it is, whether it's fishing or climbing or playing the guitar or woodworking, to be able to, to show and empathize and set the example of 
digging into something with that courage mm -hmm. and that mindset of, yeah, failure is part of it, but mm -hmm. we're going to have fun doing it. <laughs> I mean, it goes, I'm going to read another thing here. Um, but such a craftsman can see his results and learn from them and get glimpses of finer things ahead, which keep his purpose in being. And in the end, the sense of work merges with and becomes a sense of pleasure. Hmm. Most people view work as pain. All right. Mm -hmm. And there, there absolutely is legitimacy to the pain pleasure balance. I got a great example for that. Go. Kate, my wife, Katie, and I, we were um, digging out uh, an embankment on the side of our house this past summer mm -hmm. and removed uh, probably, I don't know, five to seven tons of dirt <sighs> and put in a retaining wall, yeah. a 40-foot retaining wall. And it was it was hard work. No <laughs> it was doubt. Not fun. But I look at that every time I look out my window in the shop and I'm like, yeah. Good. Like, right. Yeah. And it's every time. Yeah. Uh, totally. It was worth it. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah, it's, it's extremely hard work. And would I ever want to do it again? No. But <laughs> it's and it's fun to have that story to share. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, what's a shame I feel like is that people often won't ever find out what they're capable of. Oh yeah. And right. and that's such a tragedy. Uh, and Hayward talks about this. Mm -hmm. um, so the craftsman, he says, the craftsman has the solution ready to, at hand if he chooses to use it. Um, which, again, I think he's speaking to uh, the ability to, um, to just think differently, be courageous, you know, keep going. But uh, he continues, perhaps one of the major weaknesses of our time is that so often he does not choose. Skills, opportunities can be thrust aside in favor of an easy, effortless existence. And so something in him dies, some spark which might have kindled a flame to light the way for himself and others never sees the day. Yeah. So I, I would disagree with him in saying that something dies. I'd say that something was never born. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a part mm -hmm. of a, a potentiality yeah. in everybody, yeah. right? But, um, yeah. Uh, the idea of skills and opportunities thrust aside in favor of an easy, effortless existence. Man, it just sounds so awful. It's so awful. <laughs> but, and I mean, and again, this was like, you know, again, in the 60s. Um, and I can still think of, man, this is like the dawn of the corporate world, you know, the corporate structure. And, you know, people have been lamenting, you know, that line of, of work <laughs> since it started, you know. And that was, as we said, well before any of the technologies and stuff that make it so accessibly, you know, it's so accessible to deaden all of your senses these days. You know, you really had to go, go for it back in the day. Um, but I just, you know, I think about that with kids too. If like, if they just spend all their time, you know, trying to connect with kids or on the, on social media and I sound like such like an old codger, but like, you know, not, not really engaging in the world, they'll never get that feeling of joy. They'll never find the motivation to, to keep fostering that joy, and and they might never know what, what they could what they could have done. You know, find something that could have carried them into places in life that they never could have dreamed of. 
you guys know I've heard that there are a lot of kids out there that want to be like professional YouTubers. Yeah. I yeah, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> so to one up that, there's um additional programming out there for kids to like really? elementary kids to learn how to become YouTubers. Yeah. I should say, we're all 36. We're not old guys or anything, but, you know, I think yeah. it's very apparent to to us and a lot of people in our generation who are, you know, maybe starting families or just of an era where the kids are, you know, you know we're not that young, but, you know, we're really seeing what the next generation is, is looking like in comparison to our own childhoods. Sometimes I, this thought literally just popped into my mind, but I mean, kids are so motivated by the environments in which they're in. Mm-hmm. So similar to your story, Marty, all right? You're motivated by those people playing the guitar. And maybe the environments that these kids are in with the seven and a half to nine hours of screen time a day, I mean, that's what they're motivated by. That's what they know. They don't know anything else. So obviously it's, I'm not, um, I'm not accusing the kids of having that want or desire. Yeah. I'm accusing someone or something Mm -hmm. else. Well, you're absolutely right. We're all a product of our environment. Mm -hmm. I I have a friend who's done a bunch of traveling and he was in, I believe it was Cambodia um, a couple years ago, pre-pandemic. And he was there with a couple of other friends and they were just touring around and they were pretty deep, like in the jungle at one point. And there was this young kid, I think he was a teenager, uh, who was like their guide and he was showing them around and they were just talking. And my friend asked him, so look, what do you do for fun? And he was like, oh, you know, we have games like guess how many petals are on that flower or guess how, you know, how far that, how many sticks it's going to take to hit that tree, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And it was like the most innocent, amazing, like expression of, of this kid's life. And, and isn't it funny that I bet most Americans who hear that think, oh, that is so awesome. Like if only my son or my Mm -hmm. daughter wanted to play games like that Mm -hmm. or had the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yet, you know, they go to dinner as a family and it's like, oh, uh, you know, we just want to have a quiet dinner. Here's my phone. You can mess around on that. Mm. Yeah. And heck, it's it's very easy to be blind to yourself sometimes. Can I read something from the theory of educational sloid? That yeah, go for it. Fits a little bit into what we're talking about. We must stimulate and not stifle children's activity, and set it pleasantly coursing along the channel, which will lead to habits of work. The child is the father of the man. We'll talk about that. And if we would get rid of the drones and parasites in society, that's strong, we must teach children not only to work, but to love work. As work then 
is necessary for both our individual and social comfort. It is important for the, that the work should be done through love of itself, not through love of adventitious aids, since one who does not love any particular work for its own sake cannot do it in a right spirit or in the best possible manner. That's all strong. But I think it's it gets towards what we can do. And I think be it'd be nice yeah. to ideate on on like what kind of solutions are out there for oh, you, yeah. adults and kids. It's easy to lament all this stuff, but mm-hmm. we're in it, you know? So true. And I think, you know, we're all subject to this. I certainly mess around on my phone plenty mm-hmm. and am not present plenty. But, you know, what kind of things do you guys do? I, I would say this. I think the simplest way is get outside. Yeah. And there's so many different things you can do outside. Here in Colorado, we can go hiking, kayaking, rafting, fishing, skiing. There's so many things and so much places to explore, so mm-hmm. many places. Um, and that just gets you out there and... And I would say that it gets back to the idea of courage that we talked about earlier. Like, you have to have a degree of courage in order to do some of that. you got to get off the couch. you got to get off the couch, and you have to leave some of your creature comforts behind, right? A lot of people, when they do go outside, try to take as many creature comforts with them as possible. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, I was a Boy Scout growing up, mm-hmm. so... I I went camping a lot. Every month we'd go camping, um, and it was just a great opportunity for us to just get outside and do cool things. Cook in Dutch ovens, go hiking, get dirty, make campfires, and it was uh, pretty beneficial. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that's uh, that type of opportunity is lacking these days for kids. I agree. Um Marty, I know that you're trying to be you're trying to bring some positivity into the conversation, which I appreciate. Yeah. And I suppose that some of my answer might be somewhat negative as opposed to a thing that we shouldn't do. But in light of Christmas that just happened, mm-hmm. I think that we as parents need to be mindful of the gifts that we're giving mm-hmm. our children too. Um, I don't know. I, I, I've just heard of some of the gifts and you, you hear of the ages in which they're receiving said gifts and without going into detail, the gifts are technology, mm-hmm. right? For lack of a better word. And, uh, in my humble opinion, it's perpetuating this nation of sitters. And so I think that we have to be very careful and mindful in gifting. Yeah, because we as adults, we have agency over ourselves, maybe to a lesser extent than we might think. Right. Um, but when it comes to kids, we, we fully, you know, you know, as a parent, I fully control 
my my kids' experience of the world fully. Maybe not fully. <laughs> I like to think so, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, I put them on the bus to school, and I, like, I don't know what happens after that. But, uh, you know, but I mean, in the house, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I shape it yeah. very much, you know. Totally. And, and, of course, their perspective is their own, and, yeah. and their opinions right. are their own. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so fully is a little strong. But, uh, you know, I think with that comes a great responsibility to be conscious mm-hmm. and... You know, something I heard occasionally growing up, um, well, was uh, in particular to <laughs> some other people in my family that were younger than me. And I was like, I don't know if this is the right, it's okay. And I heard the phrase, well, that's just the way things are. That's just the way things are. And I feel like that's a really dangerous sentiment because it's just the way things are is... Is presuming that you have no control over the circumstances around you. And you're not, and more than that, you're not actively trying to change them. You know, and if that's the case, then yeah, every bit of technology that comes out that someone says, you need to go buy this, you're going to go buy it. You know, or this is just how things are. We're going to, you know, put the kids in front of screens, or you're going to sit in front of a screen. You know, you kind of buy in wholesale if you're not going to be willing to ask the questions. Um, so I think it does go back to the courage. We, if we're going to find the solutions, we're going to break free of of this, you know, comfort and the the machine that the greater societal machine that's driving everything towards more convenience and more comfort. We're going to have to be courageous about, you know, pushing that away. Mm. It's, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely and I, I think that there there's some real societal pressures to fall to the status quo for a lot of different lines right and I think that's another aspect of the courage that we're talking about here I mean we've talked about having the courage to like try something and understand that you're going to have mistakes and failure along the way right Mm -hmm. but having the courage to go against the flow per se Mm -hmm. and be different or at least perceived different go ahead all right so that is a perfect um transition into i want to find it in the uh, actual text here well let's see Sorry, I didn't. I, he's got this. So this is the uh, quote that's just pulled out in the, in the, uh, body of the article. But it says, "It is a comfortless thought how few men can stand out against the current of their time." Um. Yeah. Oh, and then you said this earlier: the good craftsman who can think for himself and judge for himself is one of the few. So, I. I Double underlined the comfortless yeah. thought one. That was uh... how few men can stand out against the current of their time, mm-hmm. and that's it. That's I think that sums up exactly what we're saying: the courage to stand out. So, um, I threw out the child of the man. Yeah. Earlier, right? Yeah. Have you any of you guys ever heard that? No. Child is the father of the man. Right? No. Your kid's going to grow up to be like you. 
<laughs> okay, that's a thought. Maybe. And I'm not, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, yep, that's not it, but Marty, thoughts? The child is the father of the man. Hmm. Well, I hear, I hear some, some, some life cycles, some cyclical nature yeah. of okay. life yeah. in there. All right. Keep going. Um, well, I think, you know, what we were talking about earlier about staying young at heart too is, you know, I can say that I learn things from my kids all the time. Mm, okay. And I, I truly strive to like experience the world with the kind of uninhibited joy that they bring to it. And I mean, in, in the utter presence to, you know, my annoyance at some points when I'm trying to focus on something and they're like, whatever you're doing doesn't matter. I want to do this right now, <laughs> dad. And, but then I just have to like laugh and be like, yeah, you're here. Let's okay. Let's go. This, whatever I'm doing usually can wait. Okay, so it comes from a poem by William Wordsworth from 1802. The poem is known as My Heart Leaps Up or The Rainbow. Shall I read you guys a poem? Yeah, sure. Yeah. All right. My heart leaps up. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. The child is the father of the man. And I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. So what does the poem mean? He uses the expression in a very positive sense, noting that seeing a rainbow produced awe and joy when he was a child, and he still felt those emotions as a grown man. He hopes these emotions will continue throughout his life and that he'll retain that pure joy of youth. He also laments that he would rather die than lose that leap of the heart and youthful enthusiasm. That mm. is the feeling. That is the joy. That is the enthusiasm. We need kids to learn, to feel, to seek. Sorry. That's it. <laughs> I, I'm just getting passionate. There's a lot of joy to be had out here. There is. In the world. It's, it's boundless. Mm -hmm. You just got to look for it. You got to believe in it. And it's not on the phone. That's for sure. I think... Do you like the last sentence of the article? Yes. I do. Why don't you read it? No, you. Okay. I'll read it. Go, Paul. For time is only precious in as so far as you can fill it with the things which bring with them the pleasure of quiet fulfillment. Life is short. Get out there and get it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think that uh, it's a great thought to, to ponder. Until next time. Until next time.